Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, and welcome back to the Inside the Board Study Smarter podcast. Today we're doing clerkship-directed study for pediatrics. I'm hoping to go through a number of pediatric questions, and I'm going to read them, and then we're going to see what the answers are. I'm going to do it blind, and hopefully I can reason through my thinking for you, and hopefully that helps with talking about strategy versus, you know, do you just, is this something you just need to know, and so on and so forth. Questions today are brought to you by Stat Pearls. Check out their website to see all this free question content that you can use for whatever phase of your studies you're in. Currently, they have a lot of cool features like questions of the day, and if you sign up and pay for their material, you can get large question books that are filled with numerous questions, like the one that we're reading from today in pediatrics. So without further ado, I'm going to start with some of these questions, and we'll see what I can elucidate for you. Just to give you a heads up on how I want to read the questions, the way I take a test is I read the last sentence first, and that is so I can see what the question is going to be asking me about. After that, then I will go through the actual vignette, and then I'll talk about the answer choices here, okay? These are four answer questions, and that should be pretty easy to kind of keep everything digestible. My first question here is, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So the importance of that is I know, you know, whatever this is asking me, it's just trying to figure out what the diagnosis is. These are typically not only common, but these are helpful or easy questions for you to just work on your differentials and say, you know, it can be this or it can't be that based on what kind of findings you're getting in a question. So which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A 17-year-old male was hiking when he tripped and fell on his side, landing on the lateral aspect of his left shoulder where you observe a minor abrasion. He is able to abduct extend and flex at the shoulder, but is limited by pain. He reports a painful lump on the top of his shoulder at the lateral aspect of the clavicle. 
His radial pulse is 2 plus and sensation is intact to light touch. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Okay, so just to talk about this patient. They fell on their shoulder and now they're able to move it, but it's painful and they have a lump on the top of their shoulder by their clavicle. I think that's probably important that it's by their clavicle. So the answer choices here are they have a fracture of the clavicle. They have a shoulder dislocation. They have an acromioclavicular joint sprain. Or they have a tear of the rotator cuff. Kind of chipping away at these one by one. A fracture of the clavicle would have pain to palpation over the clavicle. They would typically want us to be having some sort of x-ray findings. But you can see usually with a clavicle fracture, unless it's non-displaced, you typically may see like the displacement in the clavicle if it were broken. He did fall on his shoulder, and I would struggle to see how you would break the clavicle head-on like that, but it is possible. But without deformity and thing, I'm less inclined to lean that way. However, you know, I'll come back to it. A shoulder dislocation is going to be extremely painful. Typically, they're going to have trouble with movement as well, and you may be able to notice that their shoulder is not in place. So I don't like that answer at all. An acromioclavicular joint sprain? This is an attractive answer because you've got a lump right at the lateral aspect of the clavicle, which is where your AC joint is. I really like that, you know, maybe you you fell on your shoulder wrong and now the joint there hurts and there is a, a lump from what we would assume or what I'm assuming to be is an effusion um, kind of at that joint. And then a tear of the rotator cuff. A tear of the rotator cuff would also have movement or motion of the shoulder limited by pain. You may feel like some catching, you may see some crepitus. It's typically not, it can be a acute thing, but it's not typically the, the situation that I feel that you would respect it in. And then I would want to see, there are a lot of specific tests that we talk about for a tear of the rotator cuff. And those are these named tests that kind of show impingement signs. So you think of like your nears and your hawkings and empty can. Those are things that they, they may talk about or may describe in a question that's leading you to talk about a tear of the rotator cuff. So basically here I'm kind of between a fracture and a joint sprain and with the painful lump and the likelihood that it's probably not a non-displaced acute fracture, I'm going to go with a joint sprain. So the answer here is an acromioclavicular joint sprain. The explanation says that the mechanism of injury, location of pain, and the swelling, as well as the degree of symptoms, make a clavicle fracture less likely. Clavicle fractures more frequently require greater trauma, And symptoms are typically located along the location of the fracture, not at the AC joint, which is a good distinguishing feature that I failed to mention. His intact but painful range of motion makes a shoulder dislocation less likely. Typically, you see visible deformity compared to the contralateral shoulder and have diminished range of motion. An AC joint sprain is the most likely explanation given the mechanism and the physical exam. Patients with AC joint injury usually present with pain and swelling around the shoulder. And based on his mechanism of injury and physical exam, 
A rotator cuff tear is less likely compared to an AC joint sprain. Rotator cuff tear is uncommon in younger patients, requires a significant amount of force in the arm, usually in some degree of external rotation and abduction. This isn't really consistent with the patient's mechanism of injury. Again, like I said, it's possible, it's just it doesn't really meet what we're seeing. Okay, so let's move on to the next one here. What is the most likely diagnosis? A 17-year-old female is a frequent hiker and camper. She presents complaining of fever, chills, headache, and rash for the past few days. On exam, she's febrile and has a maculopapular rash on her extremities, including her palms and soles. What is the most likely diagnosis? Okay, is it Lyme disease? Rocky Mountain spotted fever? Ehrlichiosis? Or contact dermatitis? So, I guess there is a number of ways to go about this. But I, in studying for step one or two, I think, learned the mnemonic CARS. CARS is just for rashes that are on the distribution of the palms and soles. It is Coxsackie A, rickettsial species, and syphilis. So here, my choices are Lyme disease, which develops more of a bullseye lesion, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is probably the answer choice that I would go with, ehrlichiosis, which could also occur from a tick bite, which is probably something that we're thinking of. I don't remember if there's a rash or not, so it's not a choice I would pick, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be right. And then contact dermatitis, which does have rash, is not usually distributed to the palms and soles and doesn't usually come with fevers, chills, headache. So that's definitely a wrong answer. So I would go with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and that's the right answer here. The explanation is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is an infection caused by Rickettsia rickettsii. For the step oneers out there, that's a gram-negative intracellular coccobacillus. It is spread by American dog ticks and is characterized by fever with a relative bradycardia, malaise, headache, and rash within a week of the tick bite. Uh, the rash is described as beginning as maculopapular and involving the distal extremities and spreading centripetally, becoming more petechial and involving the palms and soles. It is most common in south-central and southeast United States, especially North Carolina and East Tennessee. The treatment of choice is doxycycline. Ehrlichiosis is spread by ticks and causes shaking chills, severe headache, myalgia, but rarely causes a rash. Not that you couldn't lead down that road based on this patient, but the rash is the important distinguishing feature. Not sure I remembered that. And Lyme disease is spread by ticks, but again, like I said, it described as a bullseye lesion at the site of the bite that spreads outward. And as I mentioned earlier, contact dermatitis is confined to the areas of exposure and is not associated with fevers, chills, or headaches. I kind of cheat with this question because I do remember the mnemonic, but my mom actually got Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and 
was very sick. And then eventually someone in the hospital said, huh, I think they have Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And she got her doxycycline and was better. So after that, I was supposed to know this diagnosis. I'm not saying that's a good way to go about learning medicine, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Moving on. The next question here is again, what is the most likely diagnosis? A four-week-old, previously healthy female infant develops constipation, feeding difficulty, and failure to thrive. The exam shows generalized hypotonia, ptosis, weak cry, and dilated pupils that are poorly reactive to light. What is the most likely diagnosis? Is it infantile myasthenia gravis, muscular dystrophy, infantile botulism, or low syndrome? This is particularly good for the shelf because it's going to make you determine what are the differences between these different diseases and what is a unique finding. So, again, they are a four-week-old. They're constipated with feeding difficulty and failure to thrive. And then you see that they are hypotonic, have a ptosis, and dilated pupils. The dilated pupils are particularly helpful for me. For some reason, I've associated this answer as things that can be sparing and things that are non-sparing of the pupils. One of the other answers that is not in here is Guillain-Barre. You think of that as something that does not spare the pupils, but could have a similar look to it. But I really am resting on the dilated pupils here, which would lead me to a diagnosis of infantile botulism. Someone as a baby ingests a honey product or a unpasteurized honey product. There are spores in the honey that can cause colonization of the baby with the Clostridium botulinum. This would lead them to have botulinum toxin released into their gut, which may cause problems with gut motility and feeding, such as constipation, feeding difficulties, and failure to thrive, as described in this patient. As it gets worse, you're going to develop trouble with muscle movement and lead to low tone. They have ptosis and dilated pupils because the muscles are relaxed. And they have a weak cry because their vocal cords are not tight, again, from muscle weakness. Myasthenia gravis, typically I think of that as something that you, know, you 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 see either like they're weak, but they they get weaker over time as they use muscles. The corollary to myasthenia gravis being Lambert-Eaton syndrome uh, or Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, as things typically develop more strongly. And low syndrome is a condition that primarily affects the eyes, brain, and kidneys. The disorder occurs most exclusively in males, and infants are typically born with clouded lenses of both eyes or congenital cataracts, and also have other eye abnormalities. They may have problems with mentation. They are increasingly susceptible to seizures. They have low tone, which is the defining feature that they're reaching for. They also have kidney problems such as uh, proteinuria, renal tubular acidosis, and renal failure. Anyway, I think I read about low syndrome and routinely forgot about it, so it's one of those difficult things to remember. The answer for this question is actually 
infant botulism. So the explanation here is that the stomach of an infant does not have low enough pH to kill spores of the C. botulinum. Bowel colonization results in the toxin production within the large intestines. Because of that, botulinum toxin will be released and it will prevent acetylcholine release, resulting in the constipation and a poor feeding. The spores can originate from construction sites and be blown up in the air, and less often from unpasteurized honey. All right, next question here. For the interrogative here, it's based on the 2011 guidelines released by the Infectious Disease Society of America. Children should be treated with which of the following? The question vignette is, a seven-year-old is seen in the emergency room with a wet cough, fever, and general malaise. Workup reveals he has lobar pneumonia. He has otherwise been healthy and has had all his vaccinations to date. Which of the following, based on the 2011 guidelines released by the Infectious Disease Society of America, should the child be treated with? Is it A, observation only, B, ampicillin, C, ceftriaxone, or D, chloramphenicol? So I'm imagining the infectious disease guidelines from the ID Society of America is probably going to want to have judicious and good antibiotic stewardship. However, this patient is sick enough that I think that they need treatment, so observation only is not going to be a good answer. A classic lobar pneumonia in a child should be strep pneumo until proven otherwise. In children, we typically treat strep with the first-line agent being a penicillin drug like ampicillin. Ceftriaxone is probably a little too much for a community-acquired pneumonia. However, if this was hospital-acquired, maybe that would be more utilitarian. As for chloramphenicol, yeah, I really haven't seen chloramphenicol used much in the hospital. So for me, it's just not an answer choice that I'm going to pick for this. My choice is going to be ampicillin for the reason I described. And the answer here is ampicillin. It says according to the 2011 guidelines released by the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society and Infectious Disease Society of America for the treatment of vaccinated children hospitalized with uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia, the use of single narrow-spectrum antibiotics such as penicillin or ampicillin was emphasized. As I was stating, the important things there is it's uncomplicated and community-acquired pneumonia. According to the experts, the guidelines released for vaccinated children with uncomplicated CAP was evidence-based and strep pneumonia most commonly caused the illness and that the incidence of penicillin-resistant pneumococcal disease has dropped since the introduction of vaccination. CAP is a serious infection in children, and it often requires hospitalization. The diagnosis can be based on the history and physical exam. A chest radiograph and rapid viral testing may be helpful as well. Viral and streptococcus pneumoniae infections are the most common in preschool-aged children. Mycoplasma pneumonia is more common in older children. 
The decision to treat with antibiotics is challenging, especially with the increasing prevalence of viral and bacterial co-infection. Preschool-aged children with uncomplicated bacterial pneumonia should be treated with amoxicillin or ampicillin. Macrolides are the first-line agent in older children. Immunization with the 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine is important to reduce the severity of childhood pneumococcal infections. CAP is a significant cause of respiratory morbidity and mortality in children, particularly in developing countries. It is the leading cause of death in children younger than 5 years. Factors that increase the severity of pneumonia in children include prematurity, malnutrition, low socioeconomic status, tobacco smoke exposure, and child care attendance. All right, moving on. Which of the following is the most likely cause of these symptoms? So that's a way of disguising a what is the diagnosis kind of question. A patient has been on long-term total parenteral nutrition. After six weeks, it is noticed that the patient has very dry, scaly, and pruritic rash on the limbs and trunk. Which of the following is the most likely cause of these symptoms? Is it A. Failure to use moisturizer on the skin B. The lack of essential fatty acids in the diet C. Recurrent hypoglycemia attacks or D. Lack of zinc in the diet Hmm. So, for a patient on TPN for a long time TPN is really more about, you know, your critical care patients, patients that are not able to have regular nutrition. These patients tend to need a lot of supplementation because the TPN is, well, it's kind of, I guess it's difficult to formulate with like all the vitamins and minerals that we need. So it's probably here related to a lack of a nutrient. Failure to moisturize the skin, while that can cause dry skin, a pruritic rash is probably not going to be what I'm looking for, especially in the setting of TPN, so that's not a good answer. Recurrent hypoglycemia attacks. I don't have an association between scaly skin and hypoglycemia, though I appreciate there could be one. It's not a it's not a relationship that I hold. Lack of essential fatty acids in the diet. I do think that that could lead to having dry skin. So I keep that one on the table and then a lack of zinc in the diet. Not having zinc can lead to having rash and zinc is probably something that's not supplemented well in TPN. Both zinc and fatty acids are probably good answers. I will probably pick zinc here though I I could see both. Yeah, I'm not sure which one they're going for here, but I would pick zinc. So the answer here is actually the lack of essential fatty acids in the diet. So their explanation is that when free fatty acids are missing in TPN, scaly itchy rash can develop in the limbs and trunk. Other symptoms of essential fatty acid deficiency or EFAD include hair loss, impaired wound healing, hemolytic anemia, and thrombocytopenia. Zinc deficiency can also cause a skin rash, but it generally affects the face. Okay. Prevent or correct EFAD by administering a lipid emulsion. Ah, of course. 
So this is saying that not that zinc cannot cause a rash, but it's typically only on the face. Well, I, you know, I guess you both, ha I guess you have to recognize that that is an important distinguishing feature between those two answers. And I did not do that well. So here in this case, you know, you kind of have to look at the distribution of the fact that this rash is on the limbs and trunk and that zinc typically is on the face. I wasn't aware of that. I've just associated with a rash. I think that makes this question particularly difficult from that perspective. But you learn something new, right? Let's see, this is the last one for now. What is the most reliable and cost-effective screening test to be done? Hmm, okay. A 10-year-old female presents to the emergency room with a three-hour history of swelling of the face. She reports that one hour prior to the onset of swelling, she felt numbness in that area. She denies past episodes. At eight years of age, she had an appendectomy due to abdominal pain. However, the pathology came back as normal. Her father mentioned that he has episodes of swelling of his hands and feet when he was a teenager, which resolved by itself in a couple of days. Her vital signs are normal, and her physical exam is remarkable for non-pitting, non-tender swelling of the cheeks and lips with no erythema. Again, what is the most reliable and cost-effective screening test to be done? Is it ESR, C3, C4, or CH50? So for this one, this is probably describing hereditary angioedema, considering the daughter and the father have it. Typically, you think of a C1 inhibitor as the problem like a deficiency of the inhibitor. So I'm not so sure which one I would check as a screening test, though. So obviously this is getting into your complement cascade, knowing what C1 may work on, what else might be affected as well. So an elevated SED rate could potentially be a good answer. C3, C4, and CH50. I, I'm not actually sure the setting in which you really use CH50, so that's probably not the answer that I'm going to go for. C3 and C4, you know, I typically put these together, but I'm thinking, you know, those are definitely possible answers. I'm trying to remember my complement cascade. And then ESR, it's super nonspecific, but it can be elevated in a number of things. So as a screening test, you know, I would probably pick ESR because for me, I, I would think of C3 and C4 being done together and not one or the other. And then CH50, I don't think is a good answer as I'm not really sure the context that it gets used in. But I think this is hereditary angioedema and there may be general inflammation and that could be explained with an elevated ESR. However, C3, C4, those could be answers. It just is getting into the, I guess, pathology or pathophysiology that I am starting to forget at this point in my training. But let's see. So the answer here is C4. All right. So this patient has hereditary angioedema. Got that much can present in childhood with 75% of patients experiencing symptoms before 15 years of age. It has an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern. Okay. 
Symptoms include a prodrome of tingling that precedes the swelling by 1 to 2 hours. Symptoms worsen over 24 to 48 hours and resolve within 72 hours. The edema is unresponsive to antihistamines. Attacks can occur with the most feared complication being laryngeal edema. This may require emergent intubation or even a surgical airway. Elevated ESR or eosinophilia are not usually present. If either one is present, one should consider a coexisting or different diagnosis. Interesting. C3 and C1Q levels are normal in patients with hereditary angioedema, regardless of the clinical status. Some diseases associated with low C3 include lupus or SLE, or membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis. The most reliable and cost-effective screening test for hereditary angioedema is the C4 level. It is almost always decreased during attacks and is low in between them. If C4 levels are normal, but suspicion for angioedema is high, the test should be repeated. A CH50, or total serum hemolytic complement, is typically decreased during attacks with a return to normal after recovery. It is nonspecific because a decrease in any of the components of the complement system can cause a low CH50. Hereditary angioedema is caused by a C1 inhibitor deficiency. Some patients may have low levels, others may have normal C1 inhibitor, but due to a mutation, it may be dysfunctional. Well, there you go. Hopefully you learned something on that. Typically, the way you describe a test that is cost-effective and screening, you want to have a sensitive test to get to a bit of the biostatistics of it. But the way they're describing it, I'm almost under the impression that a CH50, which just looks for complement levels, that may be, you know, because that's nonspecific, that may be the good screening test. Because if those are normal, you wouldn't expect it to be. However, they're arguing that the C4 is the correct test of choice. Anyway, you learned something new. I certainly did. Hopefully you did too. I really appreciate Stat Pearls for providing the questions to help us uh, kind of walk through some pediatrics. And we'll see you back here next time. Thanks again. 